invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 2. The Gospel of John, chapter 2. That's on page 1051 if you're using a pew Bible. And uh, any children here, kindergarten to first grade, can be dismissed to children's church. The rest you find John, chapter 2. This morning we're studying verses 13 to 22. It says in John chapter 2, verse 13, When it was almost time for the past Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts He found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So He made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle, He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said, and then they believed the Scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Jesus is my homeboy. Do you remember those t-shirts? They were popular about uh, three, five years ago. Celebrities were wearing them. They were sort of, you know, the the latest kind of fashion pop thing. Other people tried to jump on the Jesus sort of sales bandwagon. I I remember they made Jesus bobblehead dolls. I don't know if you remember those. You put them in your car and, and, you know, you're driving down the street and there's Jesus, you know, kind (laughs) of in the back window. You know, um... You ask a a person in our culture today, who is Jesus or what do you think of Jesus? And there's lots of different perceptions of who Jesus was and and what his life meant. Um, You know, there's certainly the pop Jesus, the the Jesus is my homeboy kind of Jesus. And, uh, you know, that's one that some people, that's all they know. You know, in our increasingly, what I would say, biblically illiterate culture, there's a lot of people, that's the only thing they really know about him are those sort of, you know, pop references uh, however veiled or bizarre they may be. Then there's another version of Jesus. Uh, I call this one the Newsweek, Time Magazine, History Channel, Discovery Channel Jesus. And, and this is the idea that there's, there's kind of a historical Jesus buried out there somewhere that's been covered over by you know, the church's superstition and mythology and teaching over the years. And, and so, you know, this expose will come out. It always seems to come out at Christmas or Easter, go figure. And, uh, and the idea is to sift through all the kind of mythology the church has laid on Jesus and get back to the historical guy who always, it just seems to happen, is, uh, you know, kind of a peasant rabbi who stirred the pot. And he always seems to come out the same way. And then there's another version of Jesus that says, no, no, he was more than just a historical rabbi. Uh, He was one of the greatest teachers, one of the greatest men in all of history. I mean, he taught us the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. 
this Jesus is a mix of like Socrates and, you know, Gandhi and Yoda or something. He's, you know, wise, pithy sayings that, that, that stick with us. Uh, this was the, uh, the Jesus of Thomas Jefferson. Uh, some of you maybe have heard of the Thomas Jefferson Bible. Thomas Jefferson took a Bible and a razor blade and literally went through and cut out the parts of it that he believed which ended up being a very small little portion of Scripture. He got rid of the Old Testament. He got rid of anything supernatural. And really, he just was left with kind of Jesus' teachings on morality, the ones that he, he liked. In fact, he didn't call it the Jefferson Bible. It's kind of telling. He called it the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth. The life and morals. I mean, it's sort of a, a title that's indicative of what was in it. And then there's others of us who perhaps you know, have an even higher view of Jesus that he wasn't just some pop thing to put on a bumper sticker. He was more than a historical figure. He's more than a great teacher. Some would say, you know, he was really one of the, uh, a, a man of spiritual significance. There are many who would ascribe a kind of religious, at least sentimentality, reverence to Jesus. We've seen this Jesus in the pictures. Um, maybe some of you grew up in a Roman Catholic home and you've seen the pictures of Jesus of the Sacred Heart. You know, and, and there's Jesus, and he has a, you know, sort of a red heart, and it represents his heart of compassion for the world. Or maybe you grew up in a Protestant background, and you've seen Jesus, you know, the lamb hugger, that picture. He's in the children's Bibles, and, you know, this Jesus is holding a lamb, or he's got his arm around a child, you know, like the old Charles Wesley hymn, Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, look upon a little child. And then you have... The Jesus of John chapter 2. I don't know what we'll call him. Maybe like the Indiana Jones version of Jesus. He doesn't fit these other models. He's a disruptive figure. He doesn't hold a lamb. He's whipping the lambs out of the temple. Uh, who is this Jesus? I want to think about who Christ was today and what his resurrection really means and why it's so central to who he was and, and what I think we're going to find is that the Jesus of the Bible is not one who fits tidily into our preconceived notions. That he's a Jesus who, who overturns and disrupts in many ways and said and did things that, that bothered people back then. I believe that if Jesus were to walk Boston Commons today doing his ministry again, he wouldn't be well liked because of the things he had to say and the things that he did. While people were wowed by his miracles, they were bothered by his claims. So let's look at this text. This is a perfect example. Verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now you've got to understand the Passover in Jerusalem in Jesus' day. You're probably aware that Passover is one of the high holy days of Judaism, probably up there with Yom Kippur. And uh, during Passover in Jesus' day, it was still a pilgrim feast. And uh, scholars tell us that tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of people swelled into Jerusalem. And so it, it was packed with people from all over the Roman Empire coming to worship uh, at the temple. The, you know, the temple was the epicenter of Judaism on planet Earth in those days. And so they were all coming to worship in this temple. Um, and, you know, so you've got to think, you know, when you imagine this. Imagine like South Shore Plaza two days before Christmas. That's what you've got to think of. You've got to think of Fenway, uh, Lansdowne Street, opening day of the season, first home game in Fenway Park. Think of the crowds. Think of the energy. It was that sort of 
just built up, crowded, hyped sort of environment. And Jesus comes into the temple, the epicenter of Judaism on planet earth in his day. And what does he find there, verse 14? He finds men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at table exchanging money. So in the outer court of the, the temple in that day, it was called the court of the Gentiles. It was a massive area. And in this court, they were selling animals and changing money. Now, why were they doing that? Well, kind of for convenience sake. Because you had all these people traveling, in some cases, from remote parts of the Roman Empire, and they were coming to sacrifice animals at Passover. But, you know, are they really going to bring their cow and their sheep from you know, halfway around the, the Roman Empire. So they would come there and they'd buy them. That's how they would have their animals. Uh, same thing with the money changers. They, these money changers were there and they would uh, change coinage from the Roman Empire into something known as the Tyrian silver coin. Because in those days, uh, at Passover, that was the time when Jews were to pay the temple tax. And the only coin you could pay the temple tax in was a silver Tyrian coin. So if you came from another part of the empire and you had some other coins in your pocket, you had to have them exchanged into the proper coinage. You know, it's sort of like if you flew to France, you need to change your dollars into euros to be able to function there. So it was a bank. It was an exchange sort of thing. And for convenience sake, during Passover, these two services were moved into that outer court of the Gentiles just to help people out and to make Passover perhaps go more smoothly. But apparently when Jesus saw it, He didn't think it was so convenient. He was actually outraged. So in verse 15, he made a whip out of cords and drove all the men from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of money changers and overturned their tables. This scene is just amazing. He made a whip. He made a whip. When's the last time you found it necessary to make a whip? Maybe one of those extreme parenting moments, perhaps. But, um, you, you know, what did you find it necessary to say, what we need right now is a whip. What can I improvise here to make a whip? And so he made a whip, and he starts whipping the animals. And they're running around. Again, imagine South Shore Plaza, Christmas time. Now imagine sheep and, and cattle just storming through it. This is total chaos. You know, it's crazy. And then, you know, knocking over the money. I mean, what happens? You go into a crowded place, you take a jar of money and you throw it everywhere. You know, it's like, whoa, people are grabbing money. It's, this is total bedlam taking place here in the temple. You know, I know you kids are out there and you guys, you guys have to go back to school tomorrow. Just try to imagine if you were in school tomorrow and some kid in the lunchroom got a broom and started knocking all the food off the lunch line, and started knocking over the tables, and hit the cash register, and the money went flying everywhere. You just imagine. I mean, don't do it. I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to see a news report tomorrow night. Um, you know, but, but but just imagine how crazy that would be. How it would just be wild. Imagine this wild scene with Jesus doing these things. But not only does he cause this ruckus in the temple. But I think verse 16, he does something even more outrageous, more radical, more shocking. It's, what he, it's not just what he did, it's what he says. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? So what he was objecting to was the fact that this market stuff was taking place in the temple. You know, the temple, you're supposed to walk into the temple and it's supposed to be reverent it's supposed to be a place of prayer. You're supposed to hear people 
praying, worshiping, singing, confessing sins. You're not supposed to hear old MacDonald had a farm. You know, ba ba moo moo. You're not supposed to hear that. You're not supposed to hear money changers and coin rattling. It's supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. So it was totally out of, out of sorts. But what's radical is that Jesus does something about it and that he believes he's authorized to do it. You see that? He goes, how dare you turn, here's the phrase, my father's house. So Jesus perceived himself as having a right, a, a legitimate authorization to regulate the worship of Israel in the temple. He believed that there was something about him that he could go into the temple, the center of Jewish identity and worship, and tell it how it's supposed to be. That's huge. And he says, well, it's because it's my father's house. It wasn't just that Jesus was bothered by what was going on, because we all get bothered by things that, that happen in the world. You know, things kind of drive us crazy and we complain about them. But Jesus wasn't just bothered. He actually did something about it because he believed he was the person who had the right to do something about it in the temple. This is, this is wild. The, the audacity, the temerity to, to say, this is my father's house, my dad doesn't like this, and so as his son, I'm going to take care of this. Now, what was he really saying about himself? And it bothered people. They picked up on it. They saw it. So in verse 18, jump down there. Look how the people respond. The Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? So that the crowds, you know, they're gathering around Jesus once this sort of thing calms down. I just picture this scene, this kind of, you know, a strapping 30-something guy with a whip, you know, heaving. He's just been knocking over things, standing there in the temple, and the, the crowd's gathering around him going, hey, whoa, you know, who, who do you think you are? Why do you think you can do this? Prove that you can do this. Because they understood it was more than just Jesus causing a ruckus. He was asserting something about himself by doing it. And they picked up on it. And they went right to that issue. So they said, look, essentially what they're saying is, what you're doing is something really only God has the right to do, to tell us how to worship God. And you're enforcing something that's God's prerogative. So would you please give us a miracle to let us know that you really have the right to do this? Show us a sign. Give us a miracle. Show us that you really are authorized by God to do these things. This is how it was with Jesus. He caused a ruckus and he turned things over and he challenged and he, he overthrew religious conceptions in his day. The whole, all the Gospels are full of this. Uh, you could do a sermon series entitled Crazy and Outrageous Things That Jesus Said and Did. And it could go on and on and on. So he did so many things like this. Let me just show you one more. I don't have time to look at you know, even a tenth of them this morning. Let me just show you one. Look at John chapter 5. Another, for instance, of the kinds of claims and things Jesus made. Look at John chapter 5, verse 16. Another thing Jesus did that really upset the the religious leaders was that he, uh, he would heal people on the Sabbath. You know, the Sabbath is the day you're not supposed to work. So if you're going to heal, I mean, don't do work on the Sabbath. I mean, it's great that you're doing a miracle from God. We're all very thankful. Thank you very much. But please don't do it on the Sabbath, right? And so, verse 16, Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath. The Jews persecuted him. 
So this is how Jesus explains it. He says, my father's always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They understood what he was saying was, look, I can do what I want on the Sabbath because God's doing something and I'm doing the same thing because he and I do the same thing. Like, whoo, who do you think you are? And so they wanted to kill him for that blasphemy too. So what did Jesus do? Did he back off? Did he say, whoa, 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 you misunderstood me. What I intended to say was, da, 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 or I was just being a little you know, hyperbolic or anything like that. No, when he realizes they don't like the fact that he's making himself equal with God, he just steps on the gas. He's like, okay, let me give you more. So look at verses 19 to 23. Here's what I'll do. I'll read these verses, and I want you to just go down and do kind of a little mental checklist and just sort of check off in your mind all the different ways Jesus equates himself with divine authority and identity. Verse 19, Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth, the Son of Man can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives life, gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the, fa- uh, the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Do you hear that? It's incredible. You know, verses 19 and 20. Look, everything I do is just what the Father showed me. So if you want to know what God's doing, just watch what I'm doing. What's God doing? I don't know. Look at me. I'll show you what God's doing because I just do what God says. And I do what God does. Like, wow, that is so bold. Or verse 21. The Father raises the dead and the Son raises the dead. Verse 22, the Father's not going to judge anyone. You guys know the judgment day when God Almighty will judge the heavens and the earth? Jesus is actually, little uh, clue here, he's not actually going to do it. I'm going to do all the judging on that day. So I'm going to judge the world, Jesus says. Whew. And then, to top it all off, he says in verse 23, he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So do you want to honor God? Do you want to worship God? Do you want to... To, to give praise to God. Well, you have to honor the Son. And if you don't honor Jesus, if you don't worship Jesus, if you don't praise Jesus, then you can't honor God Himself. Do you see how huge and shocking these claims were? See, that's why all of our little cultural understandings of Jesus, they don't work. Or, or I should say, they don't work with the picture we see in Scripture. Because... All of our cultural visions of Jesus are a Jesus that you can take or leave without any consequence. You know, it's like Jesus is my homeboy t-shirt. Okay, you know, you can buy it or you don't have to buy it. It's really up to you. Whatever you want to wear. Whatever. That's your style. It's not your style. Dress how you want. Or how about Jesus of history on the History Channel? Like, it's kind of interesting, but I'm sort of bored with that. Oh, the season finale of The Office is on. All right, I'll turn to that. You know, watch that instead. You know, I'll watch something else. And even if he was a historical figure, I mean, who cares? It's just history. There's lots of history out there. Or what about Jesus the philosopher? We live in a postmodern culture that cuts and pastes its own reality, just like Thomas Jefferson did anyway. And so, you know, well, if you don't like something Jesus said, just cut it out. 
You could be a cafeteria Christian, you know, take that and thank you on that. I'll take one of those and sort of concoct your own religious spiritual meal. Even even the Jesus of, of the Sacred Heart and the Jesus holding the Lamb doesn't quite fit with this because with that Jesus, he's comforting, he's loving, but you know, if you don't need that, well, maybe you can find your strength somewhere else. So it's always kind of optional. But this Jesus here in John 5 and in John 2 and in all the Gospels, he's a Jesus who knocks things over. He, he crashes into our religious and spiritual space. He gets in my religious face. <laughs> he, he goes into spiritual areas that he's not supposed to be. And he starts messing things up and saying, it's not like this, it needs to be like that. And, and when someone makes claims like this, you can't just, just say, well, that, that's just one nice idea. I mean, he's, he's thrusting himself into a conversation in a certain way. And that's why I think that Jesus would not be popular today. I, I think people would be amazed at his miracles. If he was walking around downtown crossing, doing the th- same things he was doing in those days, I, I think people would be amazed, but they would be really offended because, you know, what's our culture like? What does our culture believe religiously? It believes, you know, whatever you want. <laughs> You're good. I'm good. We're all fine. Your beliefs are just as good as anyone else's. They all get you to the same place. Follow your heart. Follow your dreams. It's whatever you want it to be. And it's all valid and it's all true. And whatever's true for you is great. And so to have someone like Jesus come into this and say, actually, if you don't worship me, you can't actually be spiritual. There's no such thing as spirituality without me. Like, wow, that is so strong and shocking and jarring. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, you know, that movie came out, The Passion of the Christ, right around Easter. And it was a really sort of grisly movie depicting very vividly what, you know, crucifixion was all about in those days and what Jesus likely went through physically and uh, it's just a really a rough movie to watch. But at the beginning of that movie, uh, there's a scene of the, the Last Supper. And in that movie, the actor who portrays Jesus um, quotes John 14:6, kind of a famous verse, uh, you know, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. So you can't come to God unless you come through me. And, and I, I remember someone who was at that movie, they told me there was some lady sitting near him and this lady said out loud in the middle of the movie, oh, Jesus would never have said that. You know, like, huh. you know, what would we do today with that kind of Jesus, with this Jesus? I really think he would turn a lot of people off because of these kinds of claims. I think, going back to John chapter 2, verse 18, many people today would find themselves in the crowd demanding the same thing of Jesus. What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? What can you show us? Give us a sign. Give us proof. Give us an evidence. And Jesus actually offers one up. He says, verse 19, Destroy this temple. And I will raise it again in three days. Now the Jews know he is delusional. Because they say in verse 20, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it in three days? You know, the, the temple that they were in that day, it started to be built by King Herod the Great around 19-ish B.C. 
And it actually wasn't completed until 63 A.D., so it took over 80 years. It was like the big dig. You know, it just it was never done. Uh, and it uh, just kept going on and on. So it was like 80 years to have it done. So at the time of this story, it was 46 years into the construction project. Uh, and that's a long time. I mean, you just imagine that. And now they, they still have another like 35 years to go before the whole thing was completed. So Jesus is saying, look, tear, this, tear the temple down and I'll rebuild it in three days. And they're like, are you kidding me? I mean, we couldn't do that anyway. Besides, there's no way. It's just so far out. But, verse 21, we have the insight from John, who, looking back on this event after the resurrection, is able to give this this interpretation. He says, the temple he had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. And then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So it sounds like the disciples, even at the time, didn't really believe it. Like, what is he saying? Why is he saying this? Ah, later on, they get it. He's talking about his body. So Jesus was speaking in code. He was speaking parabolically, which was his sort of M.O. as he taught. So what does that mean? What does it mean that the temple was his body? What What does that really entail? Well, let me ask you this. What's a temple? What does a temple hold? What do you put in a temple? You put a god in a temple. A temple is a godhouse. That's where the god in the heavens comes down and lives on earth among people so that people can go interact with the deity. That's what a temple's for. It's, for, it's the home of the God. So what Jesus is saying, if, if he's saying his body is the temple, he's like, God is here. Do, do you want to talk to God? Well, you're talking to him. I'm the temple. I mean, he thought these other statements were extreme. Think about that. He was claiming to be God in flesh among us. And in fact, really what he was saying was this whole temple complex that you're looking at was merely a prefigurement and foreshadowing of me. That God dwelling among his people in the Old Testament was simply a foreshadowing of its fulfillment in Jesus himself. Jesus is the temple. He is God in human flesh, tenting and dwelling among us. It's incredible what he claimed. And he said, if you tear down this temple, referring to himself, this is the miracle. Three days I'll rise, raise, it from the, uh, raise it up. And ironically, a couple Passovers later, the crowds and the Romans did exactly what Jesus had challenged them to do. Ironically, unwittingly, but they tore down the temple. They whipped him. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They struck him. They smacked him. They spit on him. Then they crucified him. Then they pierced him. They destroyed the temple. And then they took the temple and they stuck it in a tomb and rolled a stone over it and they buried him. He was crucified and buried. And so they fulfilled their part of the challenge. They destroyed the temple. But the story of Easter is that three days after he was crucified, on that third day, the stone was rolled away and those words were spoken which have, have sent a shockwave out through human history. Words were spoken which have forever altered the history of the world. The most important words ever were spoken on that day. And those words were, He is not here. He has risen. He is not here. 
He has risen. You know, those words, He is not here. He has risen. Those words, they change everything. They reformat all of reality. They completely reconfigure the meaning of human experience as we know it. Everything was changed with those words, He has risen. Because if Jesus was not risen, then, I mean, who was He? Based on the New Testament, I mean, He's one of the greatest religious megalomaniacs that's ever lived. He was one of the most delusional, uh, you know, God-complex fanatics that ever lived. This guy was, was off. But if He's risen... If He's risen, then, then He is the temple. He is the Son. He will judge the world. He can raise the dead. Only a resurrection could validate claims like that. The claims are too big. They're too you know, stratospheric. Only a resurrection could validate this Jesus. And so it's all about the resurrection. It's the center of of our Christian proclamation. We, we often talk about the Gospel and we say, well, the Gospel is that Jesus died for your sins. That's half the Gospel. <laughs> Don't forget the other half. Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead on the third day. Because if He didn't rise, then how do I know He could die for me or He could raise me or He could save me? The resurrection is everything. I mean, that's why we worship on Sunday instead of Saturday, the Sabbath. Because the resurrection of Jesus is just shifted and relocated the focus of all of our faith onto Christ Himself and His resurrection. It is everything. And so that Word, He has risen, it, it just bursts into our experience. You know, that the Jesus is my homeboy sits there with the, uh, you know, the iPhone and the, the, the earbuds in, sort of just in that cynical, postmodern, whatever man kind of mood. And you know, a wink and a nod and a smirk and taking nothing seriously and life's just sort of a big joke. And, and, you know, someone grabs the earbuds out and says, hey, He is risen. There really is something that means something. It's not all just a big joke that you get through by entertaining yourself. There is reality. There is a God. And He's proven it in space and time, not with the philosophical argument, but with power with power to overcome the dead. And to come to that, you know, Jesus on the TV and, you know, that, that PhD guy saying, well, you know, of course Jesus wasn't this and that. Because, you know, the guy has a PhD and he was 2,000 years after Jesus. Of course he knows what he's talking about. And uh, why, why should we trust the book that was written in the same century when Jesus was written? I, you know, whatever. So we're sitting there watching that guy and then the newsflash comes onto the TV. He is risen. And it changes everything. You know, there's Jesus, the philosopher, and we're cutting and pasting together our own spiritual beliefs. And the window comes open and the wind blows in and all of our little, you know, fortune cookie papers that we're taping together just blow all over the room. And the announcement comes through the window. He is risen. Even the Jesus in the pictures, He's not big enough to hold this Lord, this King, this Christ. He's more than just a, a friend and a helper, even though He is that. But He's the King. He has risen. So He has risen and it changes everything. And suddenly I find myself 
face to face with a Jesus that I cannot control, a Jesus who doesn't reside happily in the little box where I put him, a Jesus who kicks over my tables, and Jesus who gets in my face. Suddenly his words, going back to John chapter 5, verse 23, suddenly these words confront me and I find them to be a stinging rebuke. These words are challenging in John chapter 5, verse 23. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. And I look at my life and I say, have I honored the Son of God? That would be a no. I really haven't. You know, I mean, I've had my moments, but it's usually by His grace that I've had them. You know who I've mostly honored? I've done a good job honoring myself. I'm very good at honoring me. But I'm not good at honoring the Son of God. And therefore, I've not honored God Himself. And so I find that this risen Jesus and the that he comes into my life and, and my life is just cluttered with all of this irreligious junk that shouldn't be there. My life should be like a temple about the praise of God and about the glory of God. And it's just cluttered with all kinds of junk. The Bible calls that idolatry. And I'm confronted by this, that I haven't honored the Son, that my life has not honored Him. And I find myself condemned and judged and brought up short. But the great thing about the resurrection is not only does it authenticate Jesus' claims to deity and to be the judge and all those things, all, the, all that bad news in a sense for us, but Jesus' resurrection also authenticates and validates all of His words about being the one who can save me, about being the one who can rescue me. Look at the very next verse. Look at verse 24 of John 5. So we go from the challenging news to the good news. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes Him who sent me. So if you listen to Jesus and you, you believe in Him and put your faith in Him, you got three things. You have, he has eternal life, number one. Number two, He will not be condemned. Number three, He has crossed over from death to life. So number one, you have eternal life. Can you get your head around the concept of eternal life? I can't. Every time I start to think about eternal life, it's just it's too big. You know, we, we talk about someone going to a better place. This is not talking about going to a better place. It's talking about eternal life. You know, we wish there was a cure for cancer. We wish there was a cure for this and that. How about this? Jesus has a cure for death. There is a cure for death. It's called the resurrection. How can you believe that? That's so ludicrous. It is ludicrous unless he is risen. And then everything is possible. Look at the second blessing that comes if we believe in Christ. We will not be condemned. Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins, to take the penalty for our sins. And will not be condemned if we put our faith in him. Wow, no condemnation. You know, I bet for some of us, out of all the outrageous things that Jesus has said that we've looked at this morning, I bet for some of us, that's the hardest one to believe of all. That we could actually be forgiven by God. You know, that's the hard one for some of us. Would God actually forgive me? Could I, could I really escape judgment after my life, my rap sheet, 
what I've done to my family, what I've done to my marriage, what I've done with all my time, that God could actually forgive me. I was talking about this with a buddy last week, and he and I were just talking about how funny it is that it's, it's so much easier to encourage another person that God is able to forgive them than it is sometimes to tell yourself that God could really forgive you. But there it is. Could God really forgive me? Well, I don't know. Is He risen or not? If He's risen, then He can. Because it means His death was not in vain. But it was validated and vindicated by His resurrection. He really did die for sinners like me. And then, of course, the last thing. If we believe in Him, we not only have eternal life, we not only escape condemnation, but I love it. He has crossed over from death to life. I want you to notice the tense of the verb. Has crossed. That's a past tense. It's actually a perfect tense. It's done and completed. He's crossed over. It's done. And so this life that God wants to give us, or that God can give us through Christ, is not a a future thing. It's not a way off thing. But it's something that actually starts right now. that, That a new life and a new existence with God can begin now. You're like, really? Could God really give me a new life? I don't mean like you'll win the lottery and be able to quit your job kind of new life. That's not a new life. You know why? Because you'll be the same person in your new life. (laughs) I mean something better. I mean becoming a new person in the same old life that you have. That's a new life. You live it a totally different way. And so we can actually right now cross over from death to life if we'll trust in Christ. You say, is that really possible? I mean, it just sounds like so much religious hype and sort of churchy talk. He's risen. It makes all of this, anything that God says, possible. You know, let me just ask you a question in closing. Why are you here? Yeah, someone brought me. They twisted my arm. I didn't want to come. Someone owes me. Whatever, I don't know. You know, why are you here, though? I mean, like, why are you here in church today? Why, why, why are we anywhere and not somewhere else? Why have things happened to us that have happened to us? Why is it random? I mean, really, there's, there's kind of two fundamental worldviews. Everything is random and meaningless, and life just kind of stinks and you do your best. Or there's a purpose. And it's one or the other. It's either random or it means something. There's not an option between those two. Could it be you're here for a reason? What if, since we're talking about impossible things, what if you're here because Jesus is risen and He loves you and He's hot on your trail? And He's coming for you in love to rescue you and to bring you to Himself. What if, now that we're all saying wild, erratic, crazy things, I'll jump in myself. What if God sent me to tell you that He is risen and that He can forgive you? What if that's why you're here? What if God is real? What if it's not just all random? Because if He is risen, all things are possible. Let's pray. Lord, even as I heard that cell phone just ringing now, I pray that you would call each of us 
personally. Lord, that you would wring our hearts. We are turned off. We are tuned out. Lord, we need you to call us one by one. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would reach out to each person and that you would show us who you really are. Lord, you're risen. And it's just a fact. And I pray, God, that you would reveal that to our hard hearts. Lord, I pray for people here who are Christians, who claim to believe all these things, who believe Jesus is all that he says he is. God, even we, boy, we lose sight of you. We lose sight of your power. We fall into despair. We fall into discouragement. Lord, give us greater faith that you are risen. Lord, we need to hear from you. We love you. I pray this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.